I'm Walter Olson with the Cato Institute. Uh, <clears throat> we, have, uh, we have a topic here, glamour, that does not appear uh, at Cato very often. I, <clears throat> I wanted to quote from uh, my main research publication, The Onion, uh, which in, uh, in, in May 2008, just as a certain politician had burst onto the national scene, uh, ran the article, Obama practices looking off into future pose. And it explains that uh, using computer simulations of what angles and how wide the, uh, the, the smile should be and so forth, it, uh, the senator spends six hours a day gazing resolutely off into the distance, uh, said David Axelrod, chief political strategist. Uh, <clears throat> advisors say that the, uh, having his eyes transfixed on a predetermined point about between 500 and 600 yards away mm -hmm. creates the illusion that Obama is looking forward to a bright future, while the downturned corners of his lips indicate that he acknowledges the problems of the present. Well, Washington, as I say, is a city where we study glamour a lot. We don't get to practice it very much, and we often tend to lose it, whatever we had when we came here. We have here the author of a, a wonderful new book, uh, The Power of Glamour, Longing and the Art of Visual Persuasion. Uh, Virginia Pastorell is already known, I suspect, to nearly all of you uh, as having been the uh, editor of Reason magazine in some of its very greatest days. She uh, won the, uh, it was a finalist for the National Magazine Awards. Uh, she has since moved on to become the author of such books as The Substance of Style and the Future and Its Enemies, uh, a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, uh, The New York Times, and currently Bloomberg View. Uh, her many awards include the 2011 Bastiat Prize honoring journalism that displays support for the institutions of, the free, of a free society. And her degree from Princeton is in a combination of English literature and economics coursework. Uh, commenting today will be Tyler Cowan and Sam Tannenhaus. Tyler is going to have to leave us at 1 o'clock to go teach a course, uh, so he will be going first. He is chair of economics at George Mason, also probably known to uh, nearly all of you, the author of several books, uh, the co-author of the popular uh, economics blog Marginal Revolution, co-founder of Marginal Revolution University, online educational platform, general director and chairman of the Mercatus Center, uh, and <clears throat> my favorite, uh, profiled by Bloomberg Businessweek as America's hottest economist. Now, uh, economics, just like Washington, has a glamour problem, so I don't know <laughs> <laughs> what, what America's hottest economist means in that context, but uh, Tyler is regularly named to lists of leading economists and thinkers. Sam Tannenhaus is a writer at large for the New York Times. For nine years, he was editor of the New York Times Book Review. Uh, prior to that, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, which knows a thing or two about glamour. Uh, the author of a fantastic bi uh, biography of Whitaker Chambers and the book The Death of Conservatism and at work on a biography of William F. Buckley Jr. Before Virginia begins, I should mention that something unexpected came up uh, here uh, in our technical department, Seems which is, is it working? Okay. <laughs> Can anyone tell me? Yes. Good. Okay. The video works. You need that for Glamour. Virginia Pastorell. Thank you. It's great to be here and even greater. I was sitting there thinking, how am I going to give this talk about 
a visual language and visual persuasion with no visuals, um, which could be done, but it's much easier this way. So my, uh, my, my book is The Power of Glamour. And what I do in the book is I sort of decode glamour. I, 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 I build a theory of what it is, how it works, what the three elements found in all forms of glamour are and how they work. And then I have a couple of historical chapters uh, looking at the very earliest manifestations of glamour, how glamour changed and multiplied and became much more pervasive with the growth of large commercial cities. And then moving into the, the then there's a chapter basically on the 20th century, uh, what the role glamour played, and I'll talk a very little bit about this in the talk, in uh, defining modernity and uh, in, in the jet age uh, later in later 20th century. And then the final chapter sort of takes us up to today. That's what the book is. And usually when I give talks about the book, uh, I concentrate on explaining the three critical elements of glamour. Uh, I'm not going to do that today. This is a special Cato talk, <laughs> special Washington talk. Um, and what I want to do today is talk about myths about glamour. Uh, and, and, and truths about glamour. So this is the only slide where you're going to see the myths because I don't actually believe in repeating things that aren't true. Uh, I don't like when journalists do that format. <laughs> but, but I now understand why they do. So the first myth is that glamour is a style. It's about satin dresses or shiny furniture, jewel tones, uh, Art Deco streamlining. It's some specific aesthetic style. That's myth number one. Myth number two is that glamour is something for girls. Glamour is intrinsically feminine, uh, that there is something feminine about this phenomenon, um, and, and so we'll talk about that. Number three is glamour is a form of commercial manipulation. Now, glamour, to some degree, is a form of manipulation. Uh, but as we'll see, it's not necessarily commercial, and it's not necessarily bad. It, for, glamour is a form of, of rhetoric and persuasion. Uh, the alternative to rhetoric and persuasion is usually violence. So, you know, there's lots to be said for manipulation. Um, now, myth number four, which is a big, uh, you know, gets to big things in the book, is that glamour is trivial. And myth number five is that glamour does not affect people like me, which is to say people like you. I admit it affects me. <laughs> um, so now we're going to move to where I state these things in the positive. This is what's true as opposed to what's false. Uh, the, glamour is not a style. Glamour is a form of communication. Glamour is like humor. It is something where there is an object and there is an audience. In, he, in these two images, we have the object is the movie magazine in the little girl's uh, lap, the, the, the picture of a beautiful movie star in the, in the still from uh, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. The object is what's in the window at Tiffany's. Uh, and and these, so these are pictures of glamour at work. Um, uh, 
glamour creates, there's an object, an audience, and there's a distinctive emotional response. Uh, when we think about humor, we recognize humor because people laugh, they're amused, there's a, you know, this, that's the emotional response. In the case of glamour, it's a sense of projection and longing, uh, a, 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 a yearning toward the ideal, a sense that um, this object, which could be a person, a place, a, a thing, an idea, could satisfy some um, dissatisfactions that you have. If you, it represents a different, better life. And one way you can tell that glamour is not a style is that there's such variety, even among very stereotypical things that people find glamorous. So in the mid-20th century, the, uh, you know, a photo like this, a woman in a, in a beautiful fur coat, was sort of the epitome of, of, of glamour and fe representing feminine indulgence. Today, it would be something more like this. Uh, and there's a lot of sociological changes that have shifted what women want and and what the and what images they identify with. Uh, some for some people, the most glamorous idea of a city it would be you know a New York skyline. For other people, it would be you know escape to Venice. Uh, some people's idea of a glamorous vacation is to go on a cruise through the Greek Isles. For other people, it's to be at a ski resort. You know there there's all kinds of and these are focusing just on very stereotypical, classic uses of glamorous imagery. Um, here we see my first experience of glamour. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, You Will Go to the Moon was my very favorite book. And, you know, it was this idea, I'm this little kid, this idea of the future, this idea of excitement, adventure, uh, exploration. And, of course, this was a very common form of glamour in that period. So this is in the, in the early 60s. Uh, the, the space race and everything around space and astronauts was incredibly glamorous. And uh, over time, it sort of lost a lot that glamour, and yet we now see, you know, billionaires of a certain age spending their money to have their own space programs. Uh, that's sort of glamour at work. Uh, this was actually my other early childhood form of glamour, I suppose. But I think this really captures the feeling that glamour is this reaching toward the ideal. We're projecting ourselves into an ideal uh, uh, world where and, and the elements that are included in all forms of glamour, which are the promise of escape and transformation, uh, grace that hides flaws and difficulties, and mystery, enhance that projection and yearning. And they create this sensation, which is mocked in this card and, and, and utilized in this, this ad, um, you know, that, that Whatever the object is, if you could be there or you could have that thing, it will make you a beautiful and whole and complete human being. And of course, the, the, the woman, the man says, the dress alone cannot do that. And the woman says, true, I will have the shoes in the bag as well. And that sounds like glamorous feminine. But then I always show this other picture to remind people of how many pairs of Air Jordans have been sold with the same promise. <laughs> it's, it, they're even shoes, you know. <laughs> Um, so glamour is something we find in advertising and, and in commerce. And it, 
it holds out this ideal. It's not a specific style. It has many different styles. It's a form of visual persuasion. And I think Megan Dom's very funny book, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House, gets to a lot of the glamour that people sort of see in interiors magazines photos, in real estate ads, even in, you know, there's an open house. There's a, not everybody is susceptible to this, but some people really are. That every time they see a house for sale, they imagine their different, better life in those circumstances. So that's number one. Glamour is like humor. It's a form of communication, uh, and, and it's a form of visual, nonverbal persuasion. Sometimes they're word pictures. So secondly, glamour is not just for girls. Uh, in the first chapter of my book, um, while doing other things, one of the things that I do is I establish very strong, uh, strongly the long history of masculine glamour. And, uh, you know, this is James Bond. Of course, he, there are many masculine icons of glamour. Um, but the, the other thing is our very earliest uses of the term glamour as we use it today uh, tended to be more masculine. Um, the word glamour originally was a Scottish word that meant a literal magic spell that made you see things that weren't there, made things look better than, than they really were. And over the course of the 19th century, it not only migrated into English, particularly through the works of Sir Walter Scott, but it, its meaning changed. It became more, more, more and more metaphorical. And by the middle of the, by the late 19th century, the 1870s, the 1880s, one of the very common uses of the term glamour was the term the glamour of battle. And in the late 19th century, this was a good thing. The glamour of battle was something that drove soldiers to heroic deeds. It was something that drove countries to imperial wars. These were all good things. Um, the it, it and in sort of in this term were a whole bunch of ideas. There was the idea of patriotic significance. There was the idea of masculine camaraderie. There was the idea of heroism. All kinds of ideals and ideas were bundled together in this idea of the glamour of battle or the glamour of war. Um, and it was recognized that this was not, this term was not about the nitty gritty of fighting. And in fact, one of the citations I use in my book is from somebody who's writing a book about military logistics and sort of arguing that you know this is not this is far from the glamour of battle, but it's but it's really really important. <laughs> and and that's generally true of logistics, not glamorous but important. Well, what happened, of course, was World War One. World War I happened, and the term didn't go away, but it took on a different meaning. So in the 20s, you find the glamour of battle or glamour in, used vis-a-vis -vis military things as something that needs to be stripped off because glamour is always an illusion. Uh, it still has that 
kernel of meaning that comes from its original meaning. And what glamour does, the illusion lies in the grace that's always in glamour. Glamour always hides things. It hides costs, it hides distractions, it hides flaws, and of course, the glamour of battle hid a lot of things. So in the 20s, you find people writing against glamour of battle and actually promoting, I would argue, say in passing in the book, a glamour of pacifism, that, you know, sort of a glamorous vision of a world where everyone just, you know, eschews uh, military, uh, military endeavors. So military glamour is one of the oldest forms of glamour. It goes back to Achilles at the very least, uh, and, and Achilles is, I argue in the later chapter, was the first person that we know was glamorous to someone in particular because Alexander the Great found Achilles glamorous and modeled himself on him. Uh, but, but the glamour battle never completely goes away. We still see it in plenty of military uh, recruiting posters, and it has, it still can contains this very uh, sort of, even though people recruit women too, but it contains certain traditionally masculine characteristics, including the idea of male camaraderie. Another, just to mention, uh, another thing I'm not going to go into detail, but another early use of glamour as we use it today was in the context of aviation. Uh, aviators in the early 20th century were incredibly glamorous, and British aviators between the wars were actually referred to as glamour boys. And this was both, it was kind of a double-edged thing. It was positive, but then to sort of infantry types, it was kind of like, yeah, they have all the glamour and we do all the work. So it's a, it's a double-edged thing. So there are many masculine forms of glamour. There are many gender-neutral forms of glamour. Uh, there are plenty of men who are susceptible to life would be perfect if I lived in that house, um, in, including, I think, a number of my male relatives. Um, but, uh, you know, the, so mas glamour is neither masculine nor feminine. It's human. And the second, uh, uh, the third rather point, uh, people who don't like markets and don't like glamour often equate glamour with commercial uh, manipulation. Uh, even people who do like markets and do like glamour sometimes equate it with advertising. It is used in those uh, in in those ways, but that's not the only uh, ways in which it's used, and it's not always commercial, and it's not always even calculated. In the same way that humor can emerge spontaneously in a conversation, glamour sometimes emerges in people's lives uh, just spontaneously. And of course, Wally uh, uh, referred to one of our most recent uh, major experiences of non-commercial glamour, which was the 2008 Barack Obama campaign. Now, what I think happened is that there were audiences that found this young, not, you know, young, good-looking, self-contained uh, guy with a great, you know, family story, glamorous, and then the campaign ran with it. I don't think that the campaign manager sat in a room and figured out, let's make him glamorous, and 
you know, if we have the right iconography, it will happen. I mean, think, think it was one of these things where, oh, glamour, which is really, really rare in politics because usually politicians are too well known to have the mystery that you have to have in glamour. Uh, and they're also often, uh, partly because we want them to overshare, uh, they overshare and they don't have, you know, so, so it's partly it's the track record and partly it's sort of the personality that's drawn to politics and partly it's our demands for transparency and full disclosure and a sort of popular touch, all of these kinds of things cut against it. But in 2008, you know, God gave a gift to my glamour project and that was this candidate onto whom people projected their hopes and dreams, uh, projected what they wanted in a country, what they wanted in a president, what they wanted in the world. Uh, he was, as one of his friends told Rolling Stone during, uh, during the campaign, a sort of Rorschach test. People saw in him the things that they wanted. Now, I don't want to go into this. Also, people who didn't like him tended to see the flip side of glamour, which is not an ordinary politician that you disagree with, but was something horrific. Uh, sort of, you know, it's like Frankenstein. Oh my God, I, he Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein builds his monster, uh, thinking he has a sort of glamorous scientific idea, and then, oh my God, what did I wake up and see? The mystery sometimes leads people to project negative things as well as positive things. But this was an example of projecting onto a political figure hopes and dreams and, and seeing in him the different better life, the escape and transformation that's critical to glamour. Now, that is great if you're running for office. It is very, makes things very, very hard if you succeed and you get to be president, or you get to be whatever. Then uh, this is another reason it's fairly rare in politics, is because once you get elected, reality sets in. You have to make decisions, some of which your uh, support these supporters will like, but these other supporters will not like, because they were projecting contradictory things onto you. Uh, you also, uh, you know, one of the glamorous promises of the 2008 Obama campaign was that sort of political conflict was going to magically dissolve. And a lot of people saw this kind of, you know, th this, this harmony we would have in the country uh, if, if he got elected. And of course, that didn't happen. People imagine that racial conflict would dissolve. And again, you know, it was a big racial step forward to have a, 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 a black president, but it's one thing. It's, it, you know, he, so he's, he's not a miracle worker. He's a person. Uh, and so that glamour has dissipated, which doesn't mean people wouldn't vote for him. Uh, it just means that they vote for him for more ordinary reasons, uh, because they agree with him on this and that view, or even more importantly, because they don't like his opponents. So another non-commercial uh, example of glamour is what happens with careers. Uh, glamour has a tremendous effect on pointing people toward uh, careers that they might follow. They imagined 
that you know this would be the, the the great life for them. So you know, journalists of a certain age, uh, a lot of them became journalists. Particularly, I, I suspect we find even more of them in this city uh, because they were influenced by the view of journalism of Woodward and Bernstein as portrayed uh, by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. More recently, in the 2000s, uh, forensic science programs started to notice what they called a CSI effect. There's another meaning of CSI effect, which also has to do with glamour and commercial, I mean, in criminal trials, but a CSI effect of students enrolling in these programs because they had gotten the idea from these TV shows. And then there's this, this guy. Uh, so this is Asimov's foundation novels, which posit this sort of science of, of being able to predict human behavior. And it had, uh, it, it had a very glamorous portrayal of social, the potentials of social science. And Paul Krugman has said over and over again that he became an economist because he read the Foundation Trilogy and was influenced by what is really a very glamorous portrayal of what social science might potentially uh, be able to do. So he wants to save civilization through the mathematics of human behavior. So all of those are non-commercial forms of glamour. It's true TV shows, movies are commercial products, books, uh, but they're not using glamour. The, the glamour is unintentional. It's, they're not using glamour to get you to watch CSI. Uh, the glamour is something that comes out of it uh, naturally. And a, another recent form of this is what we saw with the, with the Obamacare databases. The, uh, they're, they're very influenced by the, the expectations for them. I, I suspect from the president on down, were very influenced by the kind of data, magic databases that you see on TV, uh, that this is how this works, you know, just like rub like this and fingerprints, you know, whatever you need, just like that. So glamour isn't necessarily commercial. And glamour is very powerful. I, I, I hope by the now that I talk about presidential elections and people's career choices that you already believe this. Uh, but let me use uh, some other examples as well. Uh, glamour has an effect. It has sort of two kinds of effects in, in people's lives in a positive sense and sometimes in a negative sense. One is that it provides uh, an imaginative escape that's just enjoyable and in some cases can be sort of life-saving or psychology-saving if you're in really bad circumstances. And the other is that it may actually motivate action, which can be anything from buying a new pair of shoes to you know, becoming a, a forensic scientist or a reporter or voting for president. Um, so this is a, a, a young woman named Michaela DePrince who experienced for whom glamour had both effects. When Michaela de Prince was four years old, she was living in a refugee in an orphanage in a refugee camp in Sierra Leone. Her father had been murdered during the Civil War, and her mother had died of starvation. So it's really horrible circumstances. And as if that wasn't bad enough, 
of all the orphans in the refugee camp, she was treated the worst. They actually ranked them, and she got the bottom ranking. And they called her a devil child. And they did this partly because she has a slightly rebellious personality, but mostly because instead of having sort of beautiful, perfect, smooth, brown baby skin uh, with no pores, as the children look like, she had uh, vitiligo, where she had white splotches on her skin. So she didn't look as cute as the other children. And so she was in really horrible circumstances. So one day, a, a Western dance magazine blew against the fence at, at the orphanage. And on it was a photo of a beautiful, smiling ballerina in a tutu with glitter. And she saw that, and she just thought, I want to be like that. That was like everything her life wasn't and that she longed for it to be. She tore it off. She kept it. She kept it in her underwear because that was the only private place she had for her stuff. And every night she would look at it and dream of a better life. And she, and a be, she said, I wanted to be just like that. And this was this sort of glamour as an imaginative respite, uh, uh, something that she said saved her, allowed her to live another day. Well, she got lucky. Uh, not too long after this happened, her uh, a couple from New Jersey came to the orphanage to adopt another child and ended up adopting her as well. And so she showed this picture to her new mother and even despite some language problems, got the message across. And as soon as she went back to New Jersey, she started taking ballet lessons. She advanced, you know, she was very driven. Turns out she was good at it. Uh, but she was also really inspired and driven because she still wanted to be just like that picture. And, and today she is a professional ballerina. So that is, you know, that's sort of the best case scenario. Is redemptive, uh, you know, imaginative escape um, that actually turned into a, a, a positive personal uh, life-shaping life experience. Now, obviously, if you're going to become a ballerina, you have to work very hard, and, and the flaws show up. Another thing that I don't have time to talk about in detail, but that was very important in, in, uh, that I talk about in detail in the book, is the way that glamorous images shaped our ideas of the modern woman and of modernity itself and of the future. And one important element in that, which is relevant to the Cato Institution, is the way they, um, the, the Cato Institute, uh, the, the way they shaped ideas of planning. In the middle, uh, in the early decades of the 20th century, up really into the 60s at least, the idea of planning in its many different forms was incredibly glamorous. And it was represented at the 1939 World's Fair. And I love this quote because it's a description of seeing the Futurama. No matter what I had heard about the Futurama, nothing compared with seeing it for myself, all the small moving parts, all the lights and shadows, the animation, as if I was looking at the largest, most complicated toy ever made. It was a toy any child in the world would want to own. You could play with it forever. You know, many, many people went through this vision of the world of the future, and very few of them thought about what it would be like to be other people's toys. And this is an image from the 1930s of, that sort of captures the glamour of planning in that period. This was in an ad for a radio. Uh, that had, you know, a single dial was the gimmick. But it was basically like 
the future central control, you know, uh, one guy in charge, wow, that would be great. And that was, you know, a, a very, you know, that idea shaped a lot of political decisions. So finally, you think, oh, those idiots, they went for central planning. Uh, you think glamour, you know, I would say glamour influences you too. Uh, you're in Washington. I bet many of you came here because you had a glamorous idea that you can change the world, uh, which I always think this is a funny, it's a very glamorous idea, very powerful, very common. Of course, people have very different ideas of what they want to change it from and to, uh, but they keep saying it. And, and we are all affected by certain glamorous memes, the idea of the free society the idea of the American dream. These are glamorous ideas. They are positive ideas, but they leave things out and they leave the details vague enough where people can project their own meanings into this. But Hayek lamented, he didn't use the word, but in 1949, Friedrich Hayek uh, wrote a lament that I would say he was, he was bummed that classical liberals didn't have enough glamour. Uh, and he talked about how socialist thought owes its appeal to the young, largely to its visionary character, the very courage to indulge in utopian thought, all forms of utopia, traffic, and glamour. In this respect, is a source of strength to the socialist, which traditional liberalism sadly likes, lacks. Well, his version did, uh, lacked it, but there was another version that was really, really glamorous. Uh, Ayn Rand is the most influential, what I called gateway drug to libertarianism. That's what I term I used last night. Um, uh, because she really understood glamour. She got it in her bones. She was influenced by it. She went to a bazillion movies. She studied them. Um, she was, uh, she came to America because she had a glamorous vision of America. She screwed up her life because she had a glamorous vision of romantic love. Uh, she was very influenced, but, and she created very glamorous visions of free enterprise, of entrepreneurship, of, of science, and also of what it would be like to live in a free society. And you know, to this day, people try to create um, new countries because they want to live in Galt's Gulch. And Galt's Gulch is, you know, is glamorous. It's, it's very inspiring, uh, but it also, like all forms of glamour, uh, leaves, leaves out things. And different people can project different things onto it. And it isn't entirely realistic. Uh, on that downbeat note, <laughs> but, it, but inspired, uh, I will wrap up. Thanks. Let me first say I think this is Virginia's best book. It has the qualities of books I really like. Uh, every page has something that's interesting. It brings together ideas from a wide variety of sources. Uh, the visuals are fantastic. It's the best integration of text and visuals in any book of its kind uh, that I know. Uh, so I'm a big fan of this. I'm uh, honored and flattered to be here. Mostly I'm struck uh, by the fact that I've been asked to come and give a talk on glamour. <laughs> so if you look at this word glamour, G-L-A-M-O-U-R, I don't even spell this word with a U. Uh, so I thought, well, what I should do is go to Google and Google economics of glamour and see what I would find to help me give this talk out of my ignorance and desperation. 
And I did that, but the first item to pop up was something written by me. <laughs> it was the announcement of this event here. <laughs> so then finally what I decided to do was to ask the daughter. And with that, I got somewhere. So being an economist, you know, I think in terms of income and price, and this is not per se an economics book, but Virginia, of course, knows lots and lots of economics. She was an economics columnist for the New York Times for many years. So let me just put some ideas about glamour more explicitly in an economics framework. So when I think about income, what I'm really struck by is wondering, uh, what's the income level at which glamour is maximized? So if you look, say, at national cinemas and you ask, which is the cinema that has the most glamour? I think a lot of people would say, well, that's Bollywood, intuitively. And that makes sense. But if you think about the country of India, and actually Ayana, the daughter, just got back from living in India. Living in India has less glamour than just about anything else you could possibly do. And that's the cinema with the most glamour. So maybe glamour is a substitute for certain kinds of wealth or certain kinds of commercial relationships. So I just started thinking to myself, very generically, which are the countries which are, are glamorous or their people are glamorous or perceived as glamorous and which not? So let me give you my list of the no's. These were the first two that came to mind. Norway and Singapore. Just coincidentally, they're about the two wealthiest countries in the world, you know, Qatar aside or Brunei aside. So let's think about Norway. They have a TV show in Norway. It's, it's a top show where people sit there and they watch a, a log burning in a fireplace. <laughs> uh, the, the best known by far Norwegian writer is this guy, Carl Knausgaard. First thing he did was A, move to Sweden, and then he wrote a six-volume work where he talks about changing the diapers of his baby. And this is a great novel, Norwegian bestseller, fine, not really glamorous. It seems to me by far the most glamorous Norwegian is Magnus Carlsen. And he is somewhat glamorous. He does underwear ads and so on. But here's a country. The most glamorous person is a chess player. To me, this is striking. And it's striking how, how wealthy Norway is. Or, you know, let's turn to Singapore, where I've been three times, spent a fair amount of time. I know this is a subjective impression, but it's really quite rare you encounter Singaporeans in Singapore who really have much of a hint of glamour. And again, Singapore is an incredibly well-run country. If I turn my attention to the New World and I think, well, what are the two least glamorous countries here? You know, take Latin America. I think if you just polled other Latins, the, the winners or losers, as the case might be, might be Mexico and Chile, right? Great countries. I love them both. But, uh, you know, in terms of per capita income, they're actually the two leaders in all of Latin America, and they're arguably the two least glamorous places. So thinking about income, this to me is a very interesting correlation. We might then ask, well, which are the most glamorous countries? I think that's a harder question to come to terms with. So I thought, well, I'll simplify that. Let's ask, you know, can we do this just in terms of women, right? Are we allowed to do this? What countries do we think of as having the most glamorous women? Uh, here's the intuitive list I came up with. I suspect you could verify it with Miss Universe winners or something. Uh, Russia, Brazil, Iran, or at least parts of Iran, very glamorous women. Uh, Lebanon, Venezuela, they do very well in Miss Universe, Cuba, uh, and Senegal. That was my off-the-top-of-my-head list of countries with glamorous women. 
Now, again, just to overgeneralize a bit, but what do all these places have in common? They're, they're kind of screwed up. They tend to be violent. Uh, they're not politically liberal in the Cato sense or even in the Barack Obama sense. Uh, and that, too, I find to be an interesting correlation. Maybe you disagree with my subjective list, but I didn't draw it up looking for the illiberal countries. Uh, you know, China is a country, its level of glamour maybe now is in transition. But I wonder, are there societies which really can go post-glamour and have Norway and Singapore does that? And maybe that will help us build backwards to a sort of more functionalist understanding of what glamour does or uh, what glamour is. And maybe there's a kind of Kuznets curve for glamour. You know, with pollution, there's a Kuznets curve. You're really poor. You don't pollute much. You grow like China. You pollute a whole lot. You get very rich and then you pollute a lot less again. Maybe glamour is something like that, and that can give us clues as to the role uh, glamour plays in human life and in society. I also wonder along similar lines, how does glamour relate to religion? I think Virginia has three sections in her book where she talks about religion. Uh, when I think of my list of countries where there's glamour or glamorous women, what strikes me actually is how much Islam is on that list. So I even intuitively, I tend to think of Islam as a religion which in some ways is correlated with or associated with glamour. Even just think about, say, 10th century medieval Baghdad, which, come on, how many of us here really know that much about? But it actually has a very glamorous image. There's something mysterious. Is it the theology, the epistemology, the idea of saints? I really don't know. But I think when you think about countries which are not that glamorous, I suspect whatever measure you come up with, Protestantism is going to be overrepresented there. Uh, Catholicism probably leads to more glamour. If you go to an exhibit, say, of medieval reliquaries, intuitively, again, it, it seems to make sense that the Catholic spectacle is itself based on glamour, and this is inherited some way culturally or economically. And this, too, may help us get a sense of where glamour fits into societies. What kind of coordinating functions does it serve? What is it a substitute for? In which ways is it somehow filling in uh, for income? So, you know, glamour and income, those were just uh, the basic thoughts I've had. It's interesting to think about societies which switch. So 20 years ago, no one thought of South Korea as glamorous. Oh. Now in Asia, it's quite frequently thought of as glamorous. The women are considered the most glamorous and beautiful in uh, at least much of Asia, maybe all of Asia. And to think about, well, how did that shift take place? It seems there was a kind of conscious marketing and attachment to some very particular features of South Korean culture. Simply the notion that a lot of other Asian countries don't hate them that much. So the, the glamour focal point in Asia, it can't be Japan, right? Because of too many historic enemies. China is also problematic. They're perceived rightly or wrongly as being big and bullies. South Korea seems maybe not to have the greatest number of friends, but to have some of the smaller number of enemies. And that has elevated their level of glamour. And then you get a kind of specialization <laughs> effect, like in these international trade models, where Paul Krugman writes about this. And maybe one can apply that to glamour. Places start specializing in glamour. Women in particular places do this, and so on. It's a kind of marketing thing. Maybe Ukraine, uh, that's what they've done. Uh, anyway, that's income. So let me just give a few words about price the other holy variable of uh, economics. If I think, you know, we ask the economist's question, is glamour overpriced or not? Right, that's the question I would ask. So you look at the economics literature. Forget about Google. 
go to scholar.google.com and type in there, glamour and economics. And then you get somewhere. You get to a real literature with, with measurements. And what I was doing last night is reading about half a dozen pieces on what are called glamour stocks. And this is a very interesting debate. So in the finance literature, a glamour stock is defined as a stock that has a price which is pretty high relative to earnings. So there's a value stock, which has a price which is pretty low relative to either earnings or book value. And then a glamour stock, which serves some kind of exaggerated perception uh, of what maybe the stock can do. And maybe sometimes these are associated with hot or cool products. We all know about the dot-com boom. But there are many other cases where you can have the price high relative to book value. So if we want to ask, just in this one sphere, it may not generalize to all these other examples of glamour, but just ask, are we paying too much for glamour in the stock market? Look at glamour stocks. There's actually a pretty clear result. I was surprised by this. And there's two clear results, in fact. Uh, the first clear result is that value stocks, on average, outperform glamour stocks. So glamour stocks, just viewed in terms of raw dollars, are a bad investment. There's actually a generalization which holds up, even with efficient markets theory. So in this regard, glamour stocks give you inferior returns. But here's the other trick. Here's why this doesn't quite refute efficient markets. Glamour stocks also, in the data, they're less risky. And this is very counterintuitive. You think glamour. You know, risk is itself glamorous, right? Virginia's examples. There's a lot about risk in the book. So you would think somehow glamour and risk go together. But when you adjust this all for price, what you see is you know, the value stocks, how well they do, depends on how well the economy is going to do. And that's going to push up or down a lot of stocks together. That's high covariance. It's what we economists mean by risk. You look at these glamour stocks. They're based on rumor, flight of fancy, trends, fads, who knows what. Weird stuff that no one understands. But each glamour stock is based on some different set of weird stuff. So their co-movement together is lower. So if you want to put together like a safer portfolio, you actually should buy the glamour stocks. Isn't that neat? <laughs> I never really would have thought of this. But you know, you go to the right Google, and you put in the right words. And I think we find economics as sort of two modest things to say about glamour. One is price. We learn something counterintuitive, which is actually pretty well verified. And then there's this question about income. And I think I still tend to believe there's like a Kuznets curve for glamour. And we're seeing the emergence of some post-glamour societies. And uh, maybe this will give Virginia the chance to write a very excellent sequel to what is a very excellent book. And if I leave early, it's not that I'm upset with Sam, but in a bit I need to go teach. Thank you all. <laughs>
a journalist, a contributor of Vanity Fair who doesn't know brand names. But uh, I'm going to do my best. And what occurred to me was just the natural way my um, increasingly senescent mind works is just to take Virginia's idea, and actually Tyler's a little bit too, and turn it inside out. To some extent, Tyler did this, and that's to ask some questions about what anti-glamour might mean and when glamour might also become its own opposite. Um, because Virginia, I think, made the great case for the attraction and even what maybe the social utility of glamour. I wrote down what I thought are the two most glamorous films I could think of. That is visually enchanting, monumental, epic, and with a, also a kind of elegance you see from beginning to end. And I thought of Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will and Coppola's Godfather films. Uh, they're exquisite, opulent, gorgeous creations. They invite you into a world, and yet it might be a world you don't really want to be in, or that might not have much of a place in it for you. And I was uh, reminded, I'm sure everybody knows this, how, how many mobsters in New York for generations pattern themselves after the characters in The Godfather. It kind of taught them how to be mobsters, just as a generation of of young men learned to speak, it was said, by reading Hemingway. Hemingway sort of taught a guy how to talk. And Hemingway is someone you could have had a picture of. You know, the great critic Edmund Wilson said early on about Hemingway, he bears an ominous resemblance to Clark Gable. <laughs> he brought a kind of glamour to literature, which was certainly not a bad thing. But there was this idea where the image might overpower the substance. And Virginia knows as much as anybody alive about how style and substance interact. Um, another thing that occurred to me from a literary perspective is whether the parallel to glamour in the terms, say, of fiction would be romance. And a lot of you will know that the, the term <clears throat> novel really comes from the French term roman. Uh, the novel in English was first called the romance. Right? The early novels are books like Don Quixote or Robinson Crusoe. And it's also an ideal imagined world, enormously powerful and um, enchanting and often with great result because it fires the imagination, which I think is one of the the themes that's really running through a lot of what you wrote about, uh, Virginia, especially with that powerful anecdote you really begin the book with and end visually with the extraordinary dancer. Um, that is the, the, the ultimate ideal that glamour might do, give and do for us. And it seemed to me the reason is because what it holds in suspension are these two ideas that are seldom balanced that well. And that is the thing we imagine for ourselves and the thing somebody else might tell us we ought to imagine for ourselves. That's where you get into the tricky realm of the triumph of the will, or as we approach the Olympics, you know, the incredible spectacle of the 1936 Olympics. The spectacle that maybe comes from somebody else. And Virginia, you touched on that, like the, the Corbusier idea of the perfectly planned city and how, or Ayn Rand herself, how close that vision of the ideal becomes, as my guy Whitaker Chambers once said, rightly or wrongly, big sister watching you. 
So um, it's those tensions that are really fine. One of the beautiful things about Virginia's book, and I agree with Tyler about this, but I'll just do it in literary terms, is there's a paradox in almost every paragraph. And I think, and I say that with only admiration, um, that every idea, every statement in some way promises or threatens to cancel itself out. And the beauty of that is, uh, you have the great line, you actually quote from somebody else, and the review at the book review mentioned it. Tell me what it is. The illusion that's known to be false that's but felt to be true. Yeah, do you, do yeah. you remember that? It's so exquisite yeah. and excellent because in the end what it gives, it, it does restore is the, the individual imagination reacting to all of this. That is to say you can look at the triumph of the will and say that's entirely false. And I think glamour at its and it's the great moments Virginia captures, does that a lot too. And here's the last example I'll give is, well, we, uh, two of them. First, we mentioned Obama as the glamorous. And Vir Virginia has a very elegant argument, by the way. There's a counterpart she didn't have time, I think, to get into, which is the opposite of the glamorous politician is the charismatic one. That is the leader who also, in the end, in Weber's analysis, becomes the kind of sacrificial Creature. That's, that's why John F. Kennedy went from being glamorous in retrospect to being charismatic. He became charismatic when he was assassinated because he becomes the around. martyr to, what's that? It's the other way around. It's the other, well, we can argue about this. Oh, no, <laughs> and there I, I really disagree. Uh, because, but, but anyhow, but that's, a, that's another story. The other thing is um, these, the notion of androgyny which is also striking to me. You know, there's a very famous comment somebody, one of the early film directors made, someone uh, mentioned how Garbo and Gary Cooper were the two most exquisite creatures alive. And he said, well, they're the same person. You've never seen them in one movie. <laughs> it, was, it was always Cooper and Marlena Dietrich. But she was also androgynous in that way, and as Cooper himself was, as Gable to some extent was. And that's where glamour opens up these other possibilities, too. Even your tennis player there. Remember that great uh, description of Jordan Baker in The Great oh, Gatsby right. when we first see her? He says, she had that thing held up in her back like a dancer does. And Lionel Trilling in his magnificent essay on The Great Gatsby, remember how he describes Jordan Baker? The vaguely homosexual <laughs> Jordan Baker. There's a little idea of that the categories are also being broken in some way. And that's also hugely liberating. So I thank uh, Virginia for uh, writing this great book. Tyler for all his uh, insights and all of you for being so indulgent and patient. Thank you. I know you have to go soon. Any further comments in response to Sam? Okay. Any? So yeah, can I? I don't know what the format is. So first of all, since Tyler has to go, I'll 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 talk about a couple of things that it. First of all, I think you're still falling for the glamorous style thing a little bit. It's like glamorous pretty women. 
many pretty women are glamorous, but I think especially when you talk about what makes a country glamorous, you have to think about how people outside that country think about it. And this gets to the South Korea thing, because I agree with you that that's a great example of a country that has become incredibly glamorous in, in Southeast or in, in East Asia, particularly. And, and you didn't mention the soap operas, which are a big part of that. And this goes to um, the other uh, sort of point, this question about income. I would argue that what you need for glamour is not a certain level of income, but sort of an an ability to imagine your income rising or your standard of living rising. That glamour has this element of hopefulness in it. Um, it, it kind of stokes discontent. So that if there isn't, if things are completely hopeless, it will totally make you crazy. Um, and I don't know exactly how this works with Bollywood. Clearly, Bollywood is very, very traffics in glamour a lot. And some of the most rural, there have been some studies, and there's something in my footnotes, but uh, there have been some studies of like where people will send in for certain cards of Bollywood far, uh, stars. And they tend to be people in rural areas for whom this is really a vision into an alternative life. The other thing that's interesting about Bollywood is it has a sec second audience, which is the expat audience, which is glamorizing India, even though a lot of them are from India. <laughs> but but, they, but they've, they've, they've moved abroad. Um, so, you know, the most glamorous uh, country in the, in the Western Hemisphere is probably the United States, uh, not because we have the most beautiful women, uh, but because this is the country that represents something bigger than itself. Now, I don't know. Some people might, you know, make cases for depend. It's it's in the audience. What do you want? Um, and so, if you want, you know, beautiful bodies on beautiful beaches, maybe it's Brazil, you know, or something like that. And Brazil has also always had that. It's always the country of the future, but it never quite gets their thing, which is related to glamour. Um, I do talk briefly about glamour stocks in in, in the uh, uh, in the book because I in the early setup because um, I think that it is an example of how uh, how the term is used in a way that gets at this idea of illusion and. and um, on, on Sam's, when I started writing this book, and if you go and you see, I gave a TED talk long before I actually started writing the book about glamour. Um, I thought of Triumph of the Will as glamorous too. Um, but as I delved into it more, I came to see that as not glamour, but spectacle which is close to but different from glamour. Uh, there are stills from Triumph of the Will. Uh, there's one Hitler looking like this, you know, up for, that is kind of doing the looking off into the future pose that is, that is glamorous. But generally speaking, what, you know, glamour is evocative and it makes you long for something. Um, it, 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 it encourages you to project your sort of individuality you preserve your individuality uh, into whatever it is. Uh, spectacle overwhelms. It it inspire. It, it, it partakes of the sublime. It it inspires. It can be intimidating. It can be awe inspiring. It can just be like, oh my god, that's so incredible. You know, it could be. It could be 
entertaining, you know, just, but it, it doesn't create that sense of yearning in the same way. And I decided that that was what was going on in that, in the, in the way that, that Hitler's stage direction, and there's a great book that I read about Hitler and aesthetics and his, his stage direction was meant to overpower and make people sort of lose themselves in the crowd and, and that it was more related to this older term of magnificence, which was something that was associated with aristocratic courts. Um, uh, Mussolini actually was more into glamour. He was very into glamour. Um, and, um, so, yes, there can be, you know, utopian ideas are, tend to be glamorous, and that's good utopian, bad utopian, and all utopian ideas have a certain static quality to them. They leave things out. Um, romance, I think, is very closely related to glamour, but the difference that I would say is that glamour is the still photo or perhaps the very brief scene, and romance is the extended narrative. And when you add in, the when you go for the extended narrative, um, then you have to add in hardship and conflict. And, but, but you still leave stuff out. You leave, you know, out... There's no changing diapers. You, you leave out the boring, tedious parts, the sort of grubby. And, and romance often has this quality of showing the, con, the difficulties in order to heighten the ultimate triumph. Um, so they are very close together. It's almost like you make a lot of glamour, you speed it up, and you get romance. <laughs> so. uh, <clears throat> we were talking um, earlier about uh, what is the opposite of glamour? And you mentioned the word, Sam, anti-glamour. Um, and, you know, you could describe frowsiness or uh, the quality of being unappealing as the opposite of glamour, but I was looking for something that was considered positive and yet was the opposite of glamour, something that instead of arousing a longing for what is not and an aspiration to, uh, to be transported, um, uh, made people happier or more content not being transported and not changing themselves. I wondered whether coziness or hominess, or is that just a different kind of glamour and glamour? No, no, I think that's very good. I mean, there, I don't think there's a single opposite of glamour because it can be opposite on different dimensions. Um, but certainly coziness is a great example of something that is positive, um, but because it lacks this sense of escape and transformation, in fact, to the, to the contrary, it's all about being very happy and content and, and cozy, you know, in, in your current, uh, you know, your, your current environment um, and having your current environment be sort of this, like, perfect expression. Of, my, my, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Wally. Well, my, my understanding of the, the coziness genre of Home and Garden magazine is that they are mostly pitched to people whose lives are absolutely nothing like the, yeah, uh, right, the, right. the, the cottage with well, little pot of flowers. Well, this does get to the idea that, yeah, I was thinking of, uh, of coziness in the sense of the, the, the log show that Tyler mentioned. Um, and Grant McCracken, whose work I draw on in, in the book, uh, who's this cultural anthropologist, has written about hominess also. And I, I do think, and now this is an interesting, I think that coziness is not glamorous. However, since you mentioned this, this, um, these Home and Garden magazines, interestingly, I would argue that there actually is a glamour in those magazines in the same way that I say the container store is the most glamorous store in America. You know, it's, it's, it, if it's not your life, it, 
that can become glamorous because there's this distance. It always reminds me of the David Brooks line about the kind of person who daydreams about buying a 3,000-acre ranch in Montana just to simplify their life. <laughs> uh, and you were going to say... Yeah, I was going to mention a couple of things. Uh, one thing you made me uh, realize, uh, Virginia, when you mentioned the difference between romance and glamour is that the great anti-romantic novel, uh, uh, the, the grounds you stated, would be Joyce's Ulysses because that's a novel where you do have bodily functions almost constantly. Um, Jonathan Franzen does this. I mean, very intentionally has got a lot of bodily functions in his fiction. <laughs> and you make me realize it's because he's trying to take the novel to an anti-romantic place. And another thing, uh, Wally, with that brilliant little uh, disquisition there on coziness, you remind me of uh, Freud's great essay on the canny and the uncanny. uncanny yeah. And the word for canny is is the Heimlich, it's, it's the homey thing. Right. And then in fact, the homey thing is haunted by this other thing, which will take you away from it. There's actually as much right. danger in right. what you think is familiar and known as there is in the thing you recognize right away right. as being really alien and, and different. And, and this um, just makes me think of another possible, which I alluded to in this talk, another, another anti-glamour thing is horror. So, and that, I call it the sort of the literal flip side where you reverse everything except your attitude. So something that's horrific, and there's different forms of horror, but this is a particular form of horror where, you know, you, it is different from what exists. Um, it is disguised by mystery, um, but what's being... But what's being hidden, instead of being mundane, which is usually what's being hidden, is something really terrible. Um, and, and then, of course, the other the term that I use a lot in the book to talk about things that are not glamorous, I wouldn't necessarily call them anti-glamorous, but things that are not glamorous is something like quotidian or mundane. It's just, you know, all the little details that make up life and that get edited out when you're creating something. Well, glamorous. they almost become the context in which right, right, glamour, yeah, ha yeah, yeah. glamour has to emerge from, where it's this idea of the opposite of it. That right, is more of a yeah, kind of yeah. Freudian idea. It gets very closer to the thing itself, only in some negative right, right, image. Right, so so it has the same emotional power, right, only it right. takes so you I in think, the opposite way. You know, I think coziness is interesting. I had always thought of horror as the opposite. And let me throw out one more possibility, which is that there are a lot of books um, which uh, <clears throat> deflate things that you probably went into them thinking of as glamorous. Right. I mean, everything from Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger to, uh, you know, the, perhaps The Red and the Black by, by Stendhal. Uh, you know, you, you read it, you go in perhaps as a young person thinking that uh, ambition and city life and uh, the military and the church are all very glorious, attractive, glamorous things, and then you are taken through to show the tawdry human motivations and the, uh, the cynicism and, and so forth. And a lot of that literature then sets up its own kind of glamour of, well, now you get to be one of our in intellectual coterie, <laughs> yeah, and, right. and you can you know, have, have a glamour of seeing through all of the institutions. I'm not sure that Stendhal is guilty of that. But. Well, a perfect example of what that happens that Virginia kind of touched on with the great World War I poets. So the idea of these great poets, you know, Wilfred Owen was the greatest of them. Um, you know, Dolce et Decorum Est, Pro Patria Mori, the great old lie, where he takes the famous 
right? Latin thing, it's virtuous to die for your country, how good, and then, and it's, it's, it's someone who's been uh, killed with nerve gas, right? And so that group of poets like Owen and Rupert Brooke and the others became tremendously glamorous figures. You can see their <laughs> portraits oh, yeah. in the British Museum because they exposed the falsity right. of dying for your country and the great war. Like Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and Hemingway again, too. You know, the yeah. great novel, um, you know, A Farewell to Arms, where he says, you know, I hate uh, those big words, those words that have no meaning anymore, like patriotism and sacrifice. They're the, they're the lies you're told, you know, by, by uh, your elders who send you off to battle. And I, I thought there was, uh, I was expecting somebody, I thought maybe somebody here would do it, um, there was something a little gruesome, I thought, about the spectacle in, Vir in Virginia's term of um, this poor young man who's and the, the State of the Union address last night, who's essentially been destroyed uh, by a war, and now what, what is his reward for that? That a lot of people who never go off to war stand up and applaud for him and feel good about it when Obama introduced uh, the, uh, I think his name is Rendsburg, the... Uh, the young soldier. Well, that's the argument the World War I poets were making, that we make a glamour out of the sacrifice for the country, and then you kind of look at what the human, you know, uh, uh, evidence is, and it's this poor kid who was sent in 10 deployments and is lucky to be alive, and yet it becomes a spectacle of, you know, great emotional outpouring, and, you know, there's a, uh, I was a little surprised there wasn't more anger about that. Maybe down on the Mises Institute, they're mad about that. <laughs> we, um, You're just but, asking for trouble, <laughs> Sam. That, that, but that was an episode where different audiences could project their own meaning of that family's and, and that soldier's experience. And um, the, a pacifist could cry and a non-pacifist oh, Well, absolutely. And, say, and, there was, and just the, the human component of there was, it was very powerful and very moving, young man's father there who's with him and, um, and all the rest, but, uh, and, but anyway, yes. Should, should we move on? To yeah. Okay. Now it's your turn. Uh, we will be entertaining questions. Um, one of these uh, kind people with a microphone will be coming to uh, put the microphone in front of you. Please uh, wait till you get the microphone, uh, then identify yourself in some way. Uh, if you have an affiliation. Uh, after the questions, we will be uh, going upstairs to lunch. Uh, we will uh, be going, most of us, up the uh, spiral staircase that you saw at the front of Cato, uh, but I'll tell you when that time comes. Uh, so, yes, um, in the very back, um, the very, very back, yes. Oh. I'll defer to Mr. Gillespie. Yes, you. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. oh I'm sorry. Did you, so, do you want to speak? Or there, uh, there was someone behind you. I was behind you. Yeah, he okay. deferred. So. Okay. Oh. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Nick Gillespie with Reason. I uh, worked with Virginia. Uh, hope to again. Uh, we're going on a cruise in a couple <laughs> weeks. It's very glamorous. It's the uh, boat on which, uh, if anybody here is a Baltimore Orioles fan, uh, the great manager Earl Weaver actually died on, which kind of undercuts <laughs> the glamour of that particular cruise. Uh, very quick question. He was not glamorous, Earl. No, Weaver. Earl was not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, 
is glamour incredible? Like, is it in increasingly transitory in today? Because when you were t talking about stuff, and we've obviously discussed this before, or in, in other contexts, but I was thinking of Joan Crawford and kind of the the great spreads that she would do in magazines like Modern Screen and whatnot. And then obviously later she got her come up and in something like Mommy Dearest, where it, you know it's revealed to be totally kind of fake, and that becomes our interest in her is you know the distance between the glossy image and the reality behind it. Is it harder and harder to maintain glamour or do people kind of, you know, over over time and then do you just keep reinventing so, yourself? So so glamour is very fragile because it requires mystery and yet it encourages interest. So the more interesting you are, interested you are in something or someone glamorous, the more you investigate it, and it can that can destroy the glamour by exposing the flaws. And that can be investigating a person. It can be you know Barack Obama gets elected and his uh, supporters still like him, but they're disappointed. Um, or it can be you know you get your dream job and you actually like your dream job. It's not necessarily bad. But then it's just your job, you know. It's just you sort of you see all the things that got edited out. So that's uh, so glamour has this fragile quality. I don't think glamour disappears. Specific forms of glamour go in and out and are constantly reinvented. I have to say something about Joan Crawford because I think it's really unfortunate that pe all people know about Joan Crawford is. Mommy Dearest and maybe some of her later work because she was an incredibly, if you start to study this, I didn't know this before I got into this book, you start to study her films from the 20s and 30s, you see how incredibly important she was in developing an idea of the modern woman. And, and making it glamorous to ordinary people um, so that she becomes actually a really important, you know, sort of feminist figure, even though a lot of her idea, a lot of the movies are about, you know, her, you know, finding some man to support her. But she's always like savvy to their evil ways, you know, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they're, uh, she's smarter than they are, but she's like this driven, ambitious Well, and person. Daisy Kenyon, though, she's a big, like, magazine editor, right? Yeah, yeah, and she so has these, uh, yeah, so it's not always about that, it's just often, often some. so, um, and, and, and maybe the problem was that Hollywood sort of insisted that she also be a mother. Uh, because she really didn't have the temperament for it, uh, but she, you know, had the temperament of like a CEO or something. <laughs> um, so. yeah, she came close at PepsiCo. Yes, and she did. Yeah, yeah. PepsiCo. She and she was involved in that. Well, yeah. another thing about uh, Joan Crawford too that really fits your thesis is. I mean, she just pulled herself up from yeah, nowhere. Yeah, she was affected by earlier movie glamour. Uh, it was the, a real hard travel, right? Yeah. Lucille Lesseur wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. came from this kind of really poor background, and she was a flapper, right? She was one of the. She started off in in these movies. Yeah, our or? dancing daughters, our modern maidens, our dancing daughters, our blushing brides, which is my personal favorite because it takes place in a department store. But, um, and and she was this flapper, and then she reinvented herself again in the '30s as a more sort of, um, uh, well, less juvenile character. She, um, uh, yes, yeah, second row. Oh, oh, were you, you ma'am, were you asking, or, or did you have your hand up to her? Okay, then you're the one I met, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> you can be next. Uh, thank you very much for your thoughtful and interesting presentation. My name is Abraham Avador, retired Foreign Service. My question is, how can the average person make himself or herself more glamorous in their ordinary life? <laughs> okay. Well, Virginia, you got a quick answer on that? Well, you're never glamorous to yourself. Um, but, I mean, you know, what glamour requires, if you want other people to find you glamorous, is uh, it requires not calling attention to your faults and, and to the difficulties you have in whatever it is. And, you know, we actually like to complain a lot. Uh, you know, oh, my God, you know, it's like it's so cold out and I'm wearing all these layers and whatever. Oh, just to take a... This is coming very close to know. saying Woody Allen yeah. is not yeah. glamorous. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, which is related is that sort of not disclosing everything. Um, now, whether you're going to have the other, the other key element, which is, you know, representing something greater to other people. Um, it could just be, look, he makes everything look easy. Um, but, but yeah, that, that, so that's, that, that's what. So don't, Gretchen, don't overshare. Those are two first yeah, steps. Yeah. So some of us are just never going to be glamorous. I think that's a, that's a lesson here. And ma'am, you were next. Um, hi, uh, my name is Julie Abrahams. I don't have any affiliation. <clears throat> I thought this was an interesting topic. Um, I haven't read the book, so my question is just based on your sure. presentation. Um, I'm just thinking about the idea of po post-glamour or post-glamorousness, um, the idea maybe that um, uh, along the lines of a f uh, um, the fish is the last to notice water, or <laughs> I mean, maybe you can only write this book because, uh, you know, we're on the other side of Glamour. Now, a lot of your examples went back to an earlier era. Maybe we're no longer in a glamorous period, and that's why you can see it. Yeah. Well, I think, actually, I, I, I think that in earlier periods, there was actually more commentary about glamour than there is today, but it was often about style, you know, because it was the thing that was glamorous at the time, you know. The, oh, Virginia, uh, I thought but, of a good anti-glamour thing, but I'm sorry, go but, ahead. Okay, okay. Um, I, I don't think we are in a post-glamour period, but I think that glamour is more complicated, and I talk about this in the last uh, chapter for a couple of reasons. One is uh, that we are very media savvy. And so uh, going back to Nick's question, um, you know, people don't want to be tricked. They're sort of wised up. And I, I talk about like various forms of wised up glamour where you make fun of it and you enjoy it at the same time. Uh, but the other thing, which I think is even more problematic and more difficult, is that we're so fragmented. And what people want is fragmented. And what images they resonate to uh, depends greatly on, you know, it varies a lot. So in the period, in the sort of, let's say, the interwar period that we associate with, you know, Hollywood glamour and the World's Fairs and all these forms of glamour, there was an international sort of language of glamour, and it was all around this ideal of modernity. And there were different, slight variations on that, um, but it there was sort of shared discontent and shared hope and and sort of different manifestations and promises of it. Today you have, you know, 
forms of glamour that would have been recognizable to people watching Joan Crawford movies. Um, but many of them are uh, versions that are, you know, around uh, around hip hop because they're about uh, they're about they originate in poor people dreaming about being rich. You have very different forms of glamour uh, that are about escape to tranquility from people who are very affluent and are not concerned about having their uh, their material needs met. They're concerned about sort of escaping from the buzz of life. And I have this picture in the book from from this uh, Angelina Jolie in in a, in a, a, a battered boat in a Cambodian swamp in a, 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 um, a in an ad for Louis Vuitton and I argued that is glamorous to a certain contemporary audience the audience that Louis Vuitton is trying to reach it would not have been glamorous in you know the mid 20th century to pretty much anybody uh, because it's a swamp <laughs> but it would have been early, it would have been in the bohemian culture Nostalgia um, I don't even right? know that it would have been for different reasons I think in bohemian culture it would have been less glamorous the opposite I'm thinking of is camp uh, yeah. which is kind of uh, right in, in some ways the most sort of brilliant uh, again I'm thinking of literary terms the most brilliant person of his period was Oscar Wilde uh, brilliant in the way he carried himself brilliant in the intellect um, nobody could talk like him. Nobody dressed like him. But there was, and there was an implicit humor in everything he did too, and a kind of parody in it. And that's where a lot, a lot of the figures we think of as glamorous. Look at that fantastic Gene Harlow photograph you have, Virginia, in your book. Oh. And you also think really of a, uh, an actress like Joan Crawford became almost a kind of parody yeah. of herself. That's the campy side of it, which interests me because camp is a, like a serious idea. If you remember the famous Susan Sontag essay on camp from 63 or 1964, yeah. which is a sort of you know, cultural breakthrough and all the rest, it almost is meaningless today. Camp, that kind of high camp has almost disappeared from the culture. I think that's actually been more democratized. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, right. it's now. I mean, I had a long, I, I can't repeat it last night. I had a long, interesting conversation with somebody last night at the Reason Happy Hour about camp. I mean, I think camp is complicated because in the book, I tend to use it as sort of an anti-glamour thing, something that's used to parody and mock and destroy glamour. But I also put forward this idea of utopian parody, which is somebody else's phrase, which is, and it comes up in the context of, of comic book superheroes, but it's applicable to many things where you are trying to protect yourself and the thing you love by simultaneously acknowledging that it is kind of ridiculous. And I actually think that in the 19, in the period that Sontag was writing and the culture that she was writing about, something more like that was going on. That 1930s films and Art Deco and these, these beautiful stars were completely out of fashion. Sophisticated people scoffed at them. And there was a subculture, largely gay, that loved these things. But they couldn't just enjoy them 
they had to kind of protect themselves and sort of have it both ways. I mean, and, but I say this like, I think Andy Warhol really liked tomato soup. I mean, I, I, I think he was much more telling the truth in his cryptic comments than a lot of people do, and that's a minority opinion. No, I, mean, I, I think you're absolutely right You know, I right think he liked that. commercial culture. I don't think it was he was sending it up, but it was very important for him to have sophisticated art buyers think he was sent. No, I, I think oh, that's absolutely uh, true about Warhol. I mean, there's a great thing uh, John Updike says in one of uh, uh, his Henry Beck short stories, the, the first uh, volume, Beck, a book, when, he, when Beck, who's this kind of composite, very f comical composite Jewish-American writer, of course, Updike was the least Jewish of writers himself, goes off behind the Iron Curtain and he meets a Bulgarian poetess. He, that's what he calls her, that's the term of the day. Poetess, he's very attracted to her. And so he says to the translator who's taking him around, he says, well, is her poetry good? And he says, well, it's good, but it's, some find it shallow. And then Henry Beck says, shallowness can be a kind of honesty, which is a really fine, brilliant thing. And I think that's, that was part of the genius of Warhol, is that there is a kind of directness right. to it. And that the, all the layers of, of mockery and camp you see in Warhol actually are part of the Rorschach that he, right, uh, right. that uh, yeah. plays off. And yeah. actually at the end of this thing about superheroes, I talk about how this utopian parody is like a Warhol Marilyn Monroe, and I actually have a picture of Warhol's Superman. Uh, I have this other theory that Warhol really wanted to be Lois Lane. That's based on seeing his comic book collection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me throw in one more example from roughly the same period, which is the, um, and actually I got this analysis from Ayn Rand, uh, who did an essay called Bootleg Romanticism. Uh, the Avengers uh, originally was the title of a British spy show oh, yes. with uh, Diana Rigg. Oh yeah, I remember uh, it very well. Fantastically glamorous. This formed oh, my idea right. of oh, yeah. as a kid. <laughs> yes. And I discovered only afterward that uh, it had been done originally as a spoof um, uh, with a wink because they didn't think that television would allow them to pull off this kind of thing as a serious presentation. Now, within a couple of years, the James Bond series had struck it big and it became perfectly okay culturally to glamorize uh, and, and you know, just sort of uh, completely indulge in admiration for these sorts of figures. But they were just at a cusp when they felt in a, campy yeah, self-protective right, it's like way. Batman. If we're going to put period. on someone as gorgeous as Diana Rigg in a cat suit, uh, you know, capering about, well, we better pretend that it's humorous. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. so interesting. And that was that the, show. I was just Love saying that that, that was like the, there is now a, a glamorous archetype of the female action hero or heroine, action heroine. Um, who often is cat suited? I have I have Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow in my book, but and it traces back really the first the origin of it is in that series, and it really only becomes big in the '90s. But it's it, because it's a kind of glamorous person that you re, you know you require a view of women and sort of their physicality that is you know it only really happens in the late uh, 20th century. Let's have more questions. Um, yes. Hey, 
Uh, Molly Cato, uh, can you sort of speak on the appeal of, of how people find glamour in things that are specifically designed not to be glamorous? <laughs> Um, such as I remember when Wall Street came out in the 80s, I got a lot of people oh, yeah, to move right. to Wall Street to become stockbrokers. And even recently uh, with The Great Gatsby coming out to theaters, a lot of people on like college campuses wanted to throw really giant Gatsby parties, right. which kind of misses the point of both stories. Yeah, well, you know, the, first of all, those are both um, works because Gatsby, it's the book as much as the movie, um, but the that in, in which glamour is part of what's going on inside the frame. So, in other words, people are you know being attracted to Wall Street, or they're you know they're going to Gatsby's parties um, in uh, because in in part because they're influenced by glamour. And in order to show that, you have to include the things that those people find glamorous and some of the audience will also find that. And, and, and I mean, Gatsby is really complicated. And Fitzgerald's, in, as a writer about glamour and the beautiful and, dam and damned also, um, is, is a complicated writer about glamour. It's not as simple as Wall Street, this is bad. I mean, it's, these are bad people. But it's not, I don't know, it's not clear that, you know, I mean, you know, Gatsby's making of himself and stuff is, is sort of interesting. Um, I thought you were thinking about something else, which is when uh, something that is created that is totally not intended to be glamorous becomes glamorous in a spontaneous way um, uh, because of the particular audience's wants and needs. And the example I use in my book is about how Oprah Winfrey uh, found glamour in the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was a sitcom about embarrassing situations. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't intended to be glamorous. It was intended to be, you know, create this sort of discomfort that you have in sitcoms. But for her as a teenager, in, you know, very smart, but in these very terrible circumstances, you know, that represented a kind of world that she wanted to join and she wanted to be just like Mary and she wanted to have Mr. Grant as her boss. And, you know, she went into TV news because of that. Um, uh, and of course, aside from being about ridiculous situation, it had very little to do with the actual world of TV news. It was, it was kind of just this concoction. But, it, you know, it worked out for her, partly because she left the straight news desk and, you know, found her metier. There's a story that I think you tell about how uh, the Soviet government would allow in American gangster films in the 30s because they thought that it would um, give America a bad image. And instead, it permanently glamorized American life because uh, even the, you know, the, the population couldn't take their eyes off the kitchens. Right, the right. Bathrooms. I don't tell that story. I actually tell stories about... How a cashier lives. I, I, I tell stories about British women because there's been some good scholarship uh, uh, done uh, with people's memories of a uh, movie going. Tell um, a British working class women talking about how you know watching these American movies and seeing they had refrigerators and they had you know they were hoovering vacuum cleaners and all these kinds of things um you know so so that that were really foreign to them and and these glamorous movies and glamorous ads had a tremendous uh influence on aspirations of uh the British working class particularly women in in that period okay we have uh time for uh, one last question, and uh, the gentleman in the white 
Uh, yes, the white scarf. Well, he's the most uh, glamorously I wasn't dressed. Gonna I wasn't going to explain my logic <laughs> in picking him, but you have. I wore it on purpose. Edward Redder from Dallas, Texas. I'm going to frame this a little bit. There's, there's a genuine question here. So, uh, first of all, my age. I've never been on Facebook. This is a question about your theme and technology, and I, too, have not read the book. And following on an earlier question is, are we in a post-glamour age? I'm of the opinion that glamour is a part of the permanent human condition, and 100 years from now, there will still be, you know, glamour going on. But so here's my question. Uh, and, and bear in mind, you know, in Texas, we don't care what they think in Washington. Or I lived in Dallas time. for seven years. Okay. So. Um, and given my age, I've never done Facebook. But I'm, I'm thinking now in, in the present society with uh, Facebook and the Internet and social media, uh, what is the impact of social media and the Internet now in, in unmasking glamour? Are we quicker at demythologizing glamour as it's presented and therefore, you know, maybe... Uh, well, let me... Let me yeah. I think that's so, so I think it's, it, there are two uh, contrary forces at work. One is this tendency toward oversharing or, 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 you know, full disclosure, which is not just about unmasking glamour, uh, but, but is about people sort of never creating it in the first place, just being very frank and open. And, and I talk in the first chapter about how it's like weird that we have glamour because it cuts against so many deeply held values, honesty, transparency, frankness, informality, uh, even, even overt sexuality, which is not glamorous. You know, glamour is more like foreplay, show a little, that kind of thing. Um, so there's that force, which and social media, you know, kind of hypes that up. But then there's this very interesting opposite force, which is that social media and uh, things like Instagram and some of the tools that are available encourage people to create both through images and through what they choose to report, glamorous pictures of their own lives, like regular people creating the glamorous version of their life, uh, only you know, only looking the best, only showing the good photos, only um, you know, only tweeting about what's going right in their lives. I mean, obviously, this isn't everybody, but there is that sort of contrary force. And I always wonder, you know, right now when you're doing that, if you're doing that, you know all the things that are being left out. But, you know, memory fades. And if you look back at your, you know, your version, your public version of your life in 10 or 20 years, you may have the sense that, wow, you know, now I have all these problems. But back then, you know, <laughs> life, life was wonderful and I was so beautiful and, oh, you know, always everything was going right and everything I did worked and you know you just forget all the bad stuff okay <clears throat> you now have two tasks uh, the first of them is to buy Virginia's book uh, which I believe is for sale out there in the quarter uh, after you finish buying it uh, <laughs> we will be uh, assembling upstairs for lunch uh, follow the crowd uh, up the spiral staircase and please join me in thanking our three wonderful speakers. <laughs>